There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Christine Tao. Christine is a co-founder and CEO at Sounding Board, where they help companies develop leaders through tech-enabled leadership coaching. Christine is also an undergrad alum from the class of 2001. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Christine, before we start talking about business stuff, can you share with us a little bit about your background and your origin story, where you're from, all the way up to what you did before Haas? I am from Taiwan and am a first-generation immigrant. I came when I was two, so, you know, culturally and norms-wise, I grew up as a California-American kid. certainly have a lot of experiences growing up of parents that were navigating coming to a new country for the first time and finding their way. My dad actually came to Silicon Valley in that wave of engineers that basically gave Silicon Valley its name. He came here and worked for iconic companies like AMD, where they were designing chips that were getting designed onto silicon wafers. And so that's, I think, an interesting part of my history and heritage. And my dad actually is an entrepreneur himself. So he went on to start a couple of companies of his own. And I worked for my dad after graduating Cal. (laughs) One, I couldn't get a job because 2001 was a terrible time to graduate (laughs) right after the dot-com bubble. Yeah, It ended up being, I think, a really important formative experience for me because I basically did everything and anything for my dad's company when I worked for him and really got to see firsthand what it took to build a business from the ground up, you know, the challenges of being a founder and entrepreneur. And then, you know, as it relates to my company, Sounding Board, also how you lead a company. And to be honest, a lot of things probably I wouldn't emulate certainly formed just my own experience of what it was like to run a company and lead a company. Where else have you worked? I noticed on your LinkedIn, you worked at a couple places. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, to be honest, I ended up going from my father's company to get my MBA, did my MBA at Wharton. And at that time decided I loved working in tech, but I semiconductors was hard and I wasn't technical and I didn't have an engineering background. So I really wanted to stay in tech, but do something where I really felt like I understood it. Mm -hmm. And so ended up going to Google after I graduated from business school, luckily landed at YouTube right after the Google acquisition. So was there just as an incredible time when digital content was moving online and all of these companies were navigating like a whole new platform and YouTube was growing like crazy. And there was just a lot of learning happening, I think, while I was there. And then from there, I went to a few different startups one of which ended up being my inspiration for starting Sounding Board. It was a mobile advertising company called Tapjoy, which also was opening up a new platform. At that time, Facebook had created a developer platform. 
Sean, do you remember when you used to be able to like throw sheep at your friends and play all these little games and apps Mm -hmm. on Facebook? And so that company was effectively helping developers monetize and distribute their apps on platforms like Facebook as they were growing. And then eventually we moved into mobile as well. So I think, you know, when I look back, that was kind of a, another theme I realized that I somehow fell into always working at companies that were at the forefront of developing or opening up a platform. And then I myself was in sales and business development and partnerships roles, whether I was the platform in the big company or eventually, you know, the smaller startup, I was always kind of out there engaging in the ecosystem and what felt like a very entrepreneurial environment where there was a lot of people trying to build new businesses on top of new tech. And so definitely now hindsight, it always feels like, oh, there's different things that lead you to where you are. And yeah, I think about that. It's amazing. I was just going to ask what inspired Sounding Board? What happened was after I left YouTube, and by the way, I always share this because I think oftentimes people look at careers and think, oh, you know, you just had this straight path forward. I landed at a startup because I got laid off from Google. And it was during 2009, which was the other big recession and was very concerned about how was I going to find a job. I had all of these loans that I was carrying from business school that I had to pay off and somehow navigated my way into this teeny tiny startup. We were 30 people when I joined. I had no idea what they did. Then realized, oh, we were sitting on top of a solution for the Facebook ecosystem as that platform exploded. We were doing mobile as Apple went to market and Android went to market and ended up getting to really scale and grow with that company. So it was a company called Tapjoy. And what happened was, so in the course of the first three years, we ended up more than 10xing our employee base. We scaled the business to over $100 million in revenue. And then I personally went from being a salesperson to running our entire sales team as part of our executive management team. And I had just never done that job before, you know? Wow. And so it was these really big learning experience and leadership experiences where luckily our CEO and our board, I think were pretty forward thinking. They understood that this was a challenging thing for a new executive to navigate. Yeah. So they gave me a coach to work with. And that really ended up being the inspiration for sounding board. I worked with a coach to help me navigate all of these big leadership transitions and challenges that I was facing. And at Sounding Board, our mission is to help companies develop their most impactful leaders. And the connection really was me. The light bulb came on where, you know, I ended up seeing just the impact that coaching had on my own development as a leader. I ended up bringing coaching into all of the people on my team as well and ended up seeing that I was able to build a team that was, you know, um, high performance, um, low attrition. And I was able to do that with talent that I mainly developed from within. Yeah. And that was all really because of an early investment in learning and development and leadership. And so the inspiration for sounding board became, well, that was a very expensive model. It was all on site, in person (laughs) services delivered, What about using technology to be able to deliver that at scale? And now instead of sending someone to a training that they're probably going to forget two weeks later, you could give them a coach that will work with them one-on-one 
over the course of a year so you can have real impact. And the experience is completely personalized to like, what do you, Sean, need to be able to develop to get to that next level? Is it around your communication? Is it around how you're managing your time? Is it how you are setting priorities for your team? But I think for us, we really, I really believe that the more people that got exposed to coaching, the better that they would operate. And ultimately, that's good for business and it's good for the companies that benefit from you being a much more well-equipped leader. The last point I will make is that my co-founder, Lori, is actually my coach from my last startup. And so I always joke around folks like it's like the hair club for men, right? I'm not just the president, I'm a client. And I loved it so much that Lori and I teamed up to bring this to more people. An interesting stat Lori always shares is she's been a coach for over 25 years. She was one of first of probably 300 coaches even certified in the profession because the industry is pretty new. And within our first year and a half at Sounding Board, we served more people than she had in her entire 25-year career. Wow. And that was because we were able to do it at scale through technology. So I think that for us is really what's exciting, being able to do this at sale and have that impact at scale. You know, for our listeners who may not have heard of Sounding Board, who is Sounding Board for? Is it for the individual executive or is it for corporations or is this for startups? What's your positioning here? Great question. Yeah, so we are a B2B model. So we sell into other companies. And primarily today, we sell into large companies. So call it Bloomberg or ConAgra or Intel. We also work with a lot of late stage private companies that are hyper growth. So think Chime, Plaid, companies like Bill.com that just went IPO. Yeah. And that's because that experience very much mirrors mine. You know, these companies are scaling so quickly. You're often promoting people into roles of leadership that haven't given them adequate training to be able to do those roles effectively. Wow. Okay. I have to ask this as along your journey, especially for a startup, right? Where, Where should startups go look for coaching or (laughs) yeah no no i look and and we started out selling to a lot of startups you know so back to the founder journey like how do you get started like we sold to everybody and anyone that would take the solution yeah so today we still do work with startups and we have them as like an smb category i would say but i would say we're a better fit because of we have a whole platform around the coaching it's pretty robust in terms of even reporting that goes out to stakeholders, how you involve and gather feedback, assessments, measurement. And so we're probably too over the top for a small startup that you're like, hey, I just want to coach. But a few hundred employees starting to scale, that's our sweet spot because then, you know, that value proposition makes sense. You care about all of the insights, the reporting, someone in HR and learning has to justify and understand the impact of that investment the scale and transparency becomes more important. And then certainly we're always willing and able to refer smaller folks that may not necessarily be a fit for our solution back into our coach network. The only reason I'm asking all this is because you had this experience at TapJoy, right? And TapJoy at the time was a budding startup. It was blowing up and then you needed this coaching. You yourself am an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. What are some of those resources that we can tap into as early stage founders for coaching? 
I mean, I think the answer is not great for the super early stage ones. What I tend to find is for at least startups that may have venture backing or investor backing, because investors really are seeing how important this is specific for sort of founder health Mm -hmm. and support. Many VCs today have lots of relationships with, they're usually sole practitioners or individual coaches that they like and will refer and recommend to their portfolio startups. So I'd say start there, check in with your investors or your VCs and see if they have folks they've already worked with. But certainly a lot of folks I know that are recent alum, so say you just came out of Cal, a lot of our coaches work in career development or with career management at a lot of universities. And oftentimes alumni are looking right back into their alumni offices for coaching resources. Hmm. So certainly wherever you've graduated, I would check in with your alumni office as well. They often will have a, a pretty deep network of coaches, facilitators, and folks like that, that can help support alumni around these types of needs. That's a great plug for our alumni department. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Cal's alumni apartment is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I just recently reconnected with Tenny and she's great. She's such an advocate for Cal and the alum here. That's amazing. I want to ask a little bit more about your personal experiences. You know, this is API month. Yep. I'm really curious what challenges or what are some of your experiences working in Silicon Valley all these years as an executive and now as a founder? Yeah. It's been such an interesting time for us as API, and I think a bit unprecedented just in terms of one, what's happening out in the world today and the crimes that are being committed against folks of API background. But the other side of that is I'm also just seeing an incredible sort of connection and community being built around the API community that I really hadn't seen in the past. And so that also, I think, has been something that's inspiring to see and motivating um, as someone of that background. Because I think so many of us have just faced a lot of these challenges and situations, and we've all have our stories around it. And most people probably didn't share that. I talk a lot about my founder experience, but actually, when I first graduated Cal, it was 2001. As I'd mentioned before, nobody could find a job. People had their jobs rescinded because the economy was terrible. And so I found myself, I had thought I was going to take a year off and travel. And then 9-11 hit. Okay. So then my parents immediately said, Christine, you come home right now. So... My travel plans got cut short. I went home and I found myself like, where am I going to do for a job? And at the time, I thought I wanted to do PR and marketing. I love to write and thought that was, it sounded fun. And I somehow landed this internship where I got paid nothing. I don't even remember now if I got paid, (laughs) Um, but I was living at home, spending money on Caltrain to get to San Francisco two days a week to just do absolute grunt work at a PR firm to try and build up some experience. And I remember working so hard at that job. Like I put in everything I could, but there was no full-time job available. And so I remember about probably like three months into my internship, they opened up an entry-level role. It was an account coordinator role. 
And I thought, oh my God, this is my chance. You know, like now they actually have something that I could try and get. And I had thought I was a shoe in because they had given me this one project and I won't go into the details of the project, but when they gave it to me, that sounded like this really exciting project. And it was actually about trying to get samples of a product onto an airline. Mm-hmm. So we represented a lot of like fruit associations. Mm. The funny part of the story was we were trying to get dried plums onto a sampling for an airline. Okay. By the way, dried plums are really prunes. So, you know, <laughs> that was the marketing that we were doing. But when they gave me this project, it sounded like this really exciting thing. And I remember calling around, seeing if I could find an airline that would sample these. And I was talked to one of my coworkers about it. And her, I still remember it this day. She goes, oh, they gave you that project, Christine? Like, that's the project they give, like, every intern that walks in here. Like, nobody's ever been able to do it. It felt like it was the thing to keep me busy. Yeah. And I remember, like, at once feeling totally crushed. And then the second part, I'm also a very competitive person. I thought you know what, I'm going to be the person that gets this done. Yeah. And lo and behold, they had originally scoped that project to just say like it was one specific airline we were trying to get on. And I thought, if this airline won't bite, why don't I just call a few others? So I called others and I got us a sampling on a smaller airline, but it was still a sampling. Okay. Yeah. So imagine you are like a new grad intern, you get this done, I see the VP of the department send out an email to the entire company talking about this initiative that we were able to launch and actually credited me as the intern for helping open that door. And I was so excited about it. So come back to the new position that had been opened. I had this kind of wind under my belt and I thought, oh, well, for sure, like I would be a shoe in for this job, right? Like I just did this amazing thing and they didn't even interview me. And it was such a disappointment. And when I asked about like why I couldn't be considered for the position, I got a lot of feedback. It was around like I wasn't quite ready. It wasn't really the right fit. You know, a lot of things that to me, I did not understand because it did not feel tangible. Right. And now looking back, they ended up hiring a white woman into the role. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that it was racism, but when I look back on it, I realized that the thing that I hadn't done was I hadn't been able to communicate to my manager in a way where she felt confident in how I could engage. And maybe it was presence, maybe it was how I showed up in a way, but it didn't look and sound like her. And it wasn't something that engendered confidence, even though my work stood on its own. Right. And I think that's a very common experience I hear from a lot of folks with API backgrounds. You know, that like you did the work, you got the thing done, but somehow you're still passed over for the opportunity or the job or whatnot. And I think that certainly has happened even as I've fundraised for Sounding Board. Mm-hmm. Look and sound like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. And I do think that means that you get overlooked sometimes because you don't look and sound like the patterns that other people recognize as leadership or what they are used to as a prototype. That was a really long story. No, sorry. (laughs) It was amazing. No, thank you for sharing that. You know, I'm wondering, obviously, there's a lot we have been doing and we still need to continue to do in this area. There's some Berkeley students that I know that just put on this amazing summit. They started this organization at Haas called Berkeley Female Founders Plus Funders. 
BFFF. Mm. <laughs> I felt very clever. That is very clever. And they put on this amazing summit for Hossies and beyond because there definitely is a lack of representation and support for female entrepreneurship for founders and even more so for funders for the VC space. And this is an initiative that I just, I love promoting and we're trying to plan some things to help them out to create more content. It's in the podcasting space to really share more diverse stories, female stories. You know, I've been wondering like, what are some of the things that, especially during your journey, fundraising with another female co-founder, what are some ways that you guys have been able to combat this, this discrimination? I'm trying to find a word for it. It's like a hidden discrimination. It's a subversive. I tend to call it bias. It's bias. You know? Yeah. And look, I don't know that I've overcome it. I may have mentioned this when we spoke before, but, you know, all the investors at Sounding Board have been investors that if you look at their track record, have invested in non-traditional founders. Hmm. And so... While yes, sounding boards, a pretty incredible statistic in the sense that less than 3% of sole female founded companies get access to and raise venture capital. And we've raised over $15 million. I'm in rare company. If you look at who ended up investing in us, our series A lead is a woman, Hmm. you know, Maha. And if you look and it's Maha Ibrahim from Canaan and if you look at her portfolio, one of her claim to fame is actually backing Kevin Chu, who is a very noteworthy Cal alum. I think his name is on one of our buildings at Haas. Yeah. <laughs> she has a track record of investing in non-traditional founders. She's Egyptian. I don't know if that impacts her, but I think that I don't know if I overcame it because my investors really don't look like typical investors. I do think that's why it's so important that whether it's this summit and this group that you were referring to, that just the conversation around this really needs to be elevated and talked about more because without there's like real systemic change that needs to happen. One is just that there needs to be more women. There needs to be more people of color on the other side writing checks. Mm-hmm. So it starts there. And then from there, what happens is like you attract certain founders and entrepreneurs to because you look like them and you feel more approachable and maybe there is an affinity there that allows you to actually just open up more access to deal flow from diverse founders because naturally of who you are. Mm-hmm. And I really fundamentally believe that. And then I think the conversation is important because the more at least that we start to increase awareness of these biases, then you start to impact the other people around in the ecosystem that have always been there just for them to be able to check their biases and know that that's actually happening. I think that's that's really powerful because as I share with you, I'm currently fundraising and as I'm looking around at different investors, there was one that my friend had recommended that I applied to. It's called the Community Fund. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have this Google form where you punch in your company information and they can help recommend, right, some other funds that might be interested in your in your space. And I've always been very conscious of this, especially going through Haas as an MBA, of making sure that diversity is one of our core values. 
And right now, it's just originally when we were building this team, it was four of us, very intentional about having a female representation on our team. Unfortunately, she had silver handcuffs and can't leave her job. Yeah. And so the easy thing to do would be just to say, hey, let's just move forward, right? Or let's just, we tried. <laughs> and the most difficult thing is to say, hey, we really need to look at, can we find another female founder or team member that this is something that we really care about. And I'm telling the story because that further got reinforced by this Google form where they have these questions around, you know, do you have a female founder on the team? Do you have a LGBTQ founder on the team? Do you have a person of color on the team? And obviously I want to say yes to those questions. Um, it's, it's one of these things that it's just really amazing that we're moving this in this right direction to make sure that it's not just lip service that we're thinking about diversity. It's actually something that it's not easy. It's really not. And maybe, maybe I'm overthinking it, but sometimes it's not easy to be diverse because the easy thing would just be take whoever's available right nearby versus going out there and spend more time to find people. I think you're right. We run into that as well, even at Sounding Board, as we are looking, we're trying to hire as quickly as we can right now. And I'm under extreme pressure as the CEO to get these really critical positions for us filled because they have a real impact on our ability to continue to grow and develop the business. It does mean you have to be intentional about it. But I think the other side is true, which is my point, which is it also becomes easier if you have people that are in leadership positions, if you have people on the founding team that are diverse, for that to continue to perpetuate as you grow. Mm -hmm. Because I read this really interesting tweet. I think it was it was a female founder. I think she, I forget her name. She's the founder of Way Up. And she had talked, she shared a stat which was around since she started the company, she's made about 30 or so angel investments and some incredible stat, like 70 or 80% of them are female founded. And then she said, and by the way, I didn't even try. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the whole point was that it's, if you have someone like that in her position that is actively putting out there that she's investing and writing checks, like attracts light. Mm -hmm. She has never had an issue with deal flow because women will approach her. People feel comfortable approaching her. And so that really is why the leadership roles are particularly important because people, I think, underestimate how much just seeing somebody that looks like you or that you can relate to can give maybe that one person the courage to be able to say, okay, maybe I will try and apply for this job, or maybe I will feel like this organization could be a place for me. Yeah, absolutely. You bring up something that's very interesting around sounding board that I just thought of. In terms of a parallel, I'm starting to understand and see sounding board because I, I'm a huge coaching fan. <laughs> I you know, went through a couple of coaches for different reasons and purposes and loved Tony Robbins. <laughs> and uh, one thing that you just made me realize is, is that coaching is very preemptive. I was talking to Samesh Dash. He's a oh, 99 bachelor's, you know, Hasi as well, undergrad, Hasi grad. He's a managing partner at IVP. And we were talking about his investments in mental health. 
But what I was thinking about was that a lot of the telehealth that has come out of the pandemic is like medicine. It's very much reactive in some ways, right? And I think it's great that these services are there because we need them. But sounding board is very much so a proactive approach, in my opinion. Do you guys see it that way? Mm -hmm. and, and what do you guys see in, around that Yeah. mental health space? Curious. Well, I love that you say that. We actually use a different word for it at sounding board. So we call what we do developmental versus thinking of how coaching used to be used in the past, which was much more remedial. Hmm. You have a problem with an employee, you have some challenge, now you have to go fix that problem. And coaching was used as a modality for doing that. I see. What we've completely see happen in the industry and shift has been coaching now has become almost the de facto model and standard for how you're able to accelerate somebody's development, particularly around these really challenging human to human skills, mm -hmm. leadership communication skills that are best done through practice, through direct application, through having this very rich context to be able to really have that deeper impact to change your behavior, yeah. right? And change your mindsets. What we're seeing now is as companies have started to understand, and then with solutions like ours, making that more accessible, available, and more cost-effective, they're now seeing, hey, where I might have done a training or just delivered a content or something like that to a set of managers before, for very similar pricing, now I can give them something that is highly personalized and actually much more impactful. And so now that they see that, I think that's really driving it towards, this isn't something that only I would want to use on my low performers. Like I want to use this on my highest performers, help them accelerate. I want to use this on my folks that I think have a lot of potential that just need additional support. And so it becomes more of a proactive model for development. And I think just prior to the pandemic with unemployment at its lowest levels and this massive war for talent, companies had to really start to think about like, how are you going to accelerate and develop a pool of leaders internally start to develop employees because you just can't find them outside of the organization or hire them fast enough. Hmm. And then your last point around mental health. So at Sounding Board, we focused on leadership development and we actually draw a distinction. Mental health is certainly an important part of a holistic view of you as a person. But that's a very different approach to be addressing your mental health mm -hmm. than it is to be addressing you developing the right skills you need to be effective at your job and be an effective manager. Mm. And so we're more on that spectrum. But certainly, I think the macro trends around understanding that people need a support system, people need all of these types of support systems in order to be effective and productive at work, all certainly, I think, come into play, at least in terms of importance of our market opportunity around sounding board. Mm -hmm. And I think that the well-being, the balance of that leader as well. That's right. Yeah. Because if you aren't balanced, it's hard to believe that you are going to be able to sustain, you know, long-term effective leadership. You might be able to get through it, yeah. but then on the other end of that is burnout, stress, things like that. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking along. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I'm really glad to hear that companies are having that shift and having that realization that even top performers need coaching. 
everybody needs coaching. That's right. I mean, you look at Steph Curry, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I mean, just the sports industry yeah. is like a, an incredible analogy for us. Who top of your game, arguably best in the world and what you still need a coach yeah. because the thing is your environment changes, your situation changes, your team changes, yeah. right? All of those things have an impact on your performance. So it is something you have to continue to work at. That's exactly what I used to tell people when they're like, why do you have a coach? Said the, the late Kobe Bryant, he had a coach. Kobe was at the top <laughs> of his game. He had a coach. The Williams sisters, they have coaches, right? It's, yeah. And they're at the top. Oprah has, has a coach and they're at the top of their games, but they have coaches. Yeah. And a big part of that really is there is something just profoundly impactful about a third party perspective mm -hmm. because every person, you as a human, you have your own blind spots. You may not always understand the impact that your behavior or your actions are having on others. Mm -hmm. And if you can have a really agnostic third party perspective, somebody that has no skin in the game, except for wanting you to be successful in whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, the ability for that person to help you raise your awareness about that, and then be in a position to help you develop the right skills to be able to impact that differently is just so powerful. This is my last question around this. For people, when let's say the corporations, the companies that you work with, the leadership recognizes that this individual, this manager needs coaching. How, you know, I, I feel like for people to receive coaching, they need a level of awareness that they need to improve. But sometimes personally, I just get stuck. I know something needs to improve, but I don't know what it is. How do you guys work around that? So there's a simple answer. Thank God. <laughs> and then there is what takes time to do. One simple thing really is just how do you start to understand like what might be happening that you may not be aware of? Oftentimes that's just asking for feedback. And so a core part of our model really is around feedback and feedback at the start, as well as whether it's assessments or profiles that help you better understand yourself. Those types of things can at least generate you and give you a little kickstart, right? So just even understanding some feedback from your manager or maybe your peers, things like that. And then as we go along, some of that feedback may come from and some of that guidance might come from your coach because coaching really is a skill. There's a lot of work and skills that coaches develop around observation, pattern recognition, being able to help you raise your awareness about developmental areas of opportunity. And then we also will continue through our technology to continue to survey and pulse and allow for you to collaborate with others to keep getting that feedback into your development. You're right that it's not always easy to know, but really I think it's you know a combination of the right tools as well as the coaching itself. That's the first thing I'm going to do today after this interview. I'm going to ask my co-founder for feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Just be ready to receive it. <laughs> I, I can't wait for it. <laughs> do you guys do that often between the two of you? Here. <laughs> oh, all the time. All the time. I mean, look, co-founder relationships are probably next to my marriage, like the most challenging relationships to navigate yeah. because you're doing these really hard things together and also spending just a ton of time together. And then you have on top of that, the stress of those decisions and the business. Yeah. So I think my advice really is what's worked for Lori and I 
certainly doesn't mean that there aren't days that we drive each other nuts, but (laughs) we make sure that we have time we carve out consistently to engage, to connect, to realign. And then also like a commitment to working through issues and challenges when we have them. And of course, coaching helps too. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Christine, for your time. Um, Really looking forward to the episode that will follow this, our interview with Roy Ng, another fellow Hasi and entrepreneur. Thanks again for having me, Sean. It's always a pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Thank you.